Let's head to my conversation with CBS Chief Elections Correspondent Robert Costa, who is moderating Face the Nation this Sunday in for Margaret Brennan. I began by leaning into Robert's specialty, elections. Well, she has a real test coming up in her home state of South Carolina. Its primary is a week uh, from Saturday. And if she can't do well there, it's hard to see a path ahead. So it's not surprising uh, that while she is continuing to try to make inroads in South Carolina for the Super Tuesday states, she at the same time knows that Trump is collecting delegates and could likely be the nominee. On Face the Nation on Sunday, we're going to talk to three South Carolinians about that upcoming primary, Senator Tim Scott and Senator Lindsey Graham, both Republicans, about Haley and about Trump. We'll also speak to Democrat Jim Clyburn of the House of Representatives, who is a key confidant of President Joe Biden. What are her chances in South Carolina, given she used to be the governor there? She won big in 2010. She was reelected in 2014 as governor, then served in the Trump administration. But it's become Trump country in South Carolina. I've been there a lot as a reporter for CBS, and it's evident that Trump has so much deep support in South Carolina that he's transformed the Republican Party to really make it in his image rather than kind of that traditional GOP voter that used to elect Nikki Haley. What are voters saying? I remember when uh, former President Trump ran the first time, it was about the border wall and keeping drugs out of the country and draining the swamp. What is his appeal now? His appeal is that he is anti-establishment. And you hear that in state after state. He's facing all of these legal challenges. He's going to be on criminal trial here in New York City, where I am, starting in March for the hush money payments he made in 2016 to Stormy Daniels. And despite all of that, despite the legal challenges on the federal front with January 6th and classified records, so many of his supporters believe he is their warrior, uh, even if he has a lot of flaws at the same time in their view as well. And so they have embraced him largely inside the Republican Party. Let's talk about his legal troubles. You said you're in New York for the beginning of the hush money trial. Catch us up on that. The hush money uh was paid in 2016 in the weeks before the presidential election. And now years later, Trump is facing a criminal trial about the context of those payments and whether they were were illegal and campaign payments that should have been properly documented rather than some kind of non-disclosure agreement that was, uh, that could be legal. So he's pleaded not, not guilty to the charges, but logistically this could be a nightmare for Trump because it starts on March 25th in New York and By law, Trump is obligated to sit in the court because it's a criminal trial. So six weeks in New York, all while he's trying to ramp up his general election campaign against President Joe Biden. I'm not sure if that's going to he's not even debating and he's still doing well. Does he even have to appear as a candidate to win the nomination? Doesn't seem like that's necessary at this point. Uh, the, The question is, if it's if it's the general election, you know, he's losing valuable time to try to pivot to the battle against Biden. Yeah, I suppose that's true. How is the polling between uh, former President Trump and current President Biden? Well, they both have their their challenges in the polling. Uh, President Biden is facing some tough marks sometimes on the economy. People feeling inflationary pain when they go to the grocery store or the gas pump. Mm. Uh, But Trump, in his conduct, in what happened on January 6th, and his role in that has raised a lot of concerns for other voters as well. So they both enter this race uh, with Not so great numbers among some key voter groups across the country. We are talking with CBS elections correspondent Robert Costa. Wanted to go back to former President Donald Trump's legal troubles. We were uh, which were especially in the headlines this week. Two current cases in New York, the hush money case and then the civil fraud. So I asked Robert about those. We're going to likely hear 
a ruling on that today, on Friday, about whether Trump's businesses and he, he will be fined hundreds of millions of dollars. We're not talking about some kind of minor fee. We're looking at hundreds of millions of dollars fine, $400, $500 million for fraud on a civil level. And the biggest problem for Trump is that this could be devastating for his businesses. He would have to pay up a huge amount of this up front quickly, and he might be barred from doing business in the state of New York. And for someone whose business career is so intertwined with his political persona, this is not what he wants to see happen. And do we expect to hear from the U.S. Supreme Court anytime soon on the Colorado 14th Amendment case? It's hard to read the Supreme Court. They're kind of difficult to discern entity in Washington, but we do expect sometime in the next few months they're going to weigh in on whether Trump is immune or not from prosecution. At the same time, the special counsel, Jack Smith, is urging the Supreme Court to allow this January 6th case to move forward so Trump can face prosecution and a trial before the election. Jack Smith, the special counsel, has been saying to the court that this is an enormous high stakes endeavor, that the public interest is high and that the public needs to see the new evidence that's been collected at a trial on January 6th before Trump faces voters again. Seems since 2015, everything uh, political wise has been unprecedented. If you're looking into your crystal ball for this general election and you've covered so many elections, what are you seeing in the, the future for America as we careen towards November? We used to talk about politics in the prism of red versus blue, Republican versus Democrat, but disruptions in the global economy going back to 2008, the erosion of institutional trust. You think about the Iraq war and the decisions made by George W. Bush, decisions made by Democrats in Congress as well. It's led to this kind of push toward the the left and push toward the right in these respective parties. And it's led to many voters becoming independent-minded, not so tied to the party. And the emergence of Trump as this outsider who careens against the system has made him someone of enormous appeal to more populist-leaning conservatives And that has created a movement in this country, movement politics, that's so different than what we've traditionally experienced. Interesting. So almost a disenfranchisement from political figures to the point that voters are willing to back somebody who faces myriad criminal or not necessarily criminal cases, but legal troubles because it's anti-establishment. Is that right? That's exactly right. Mm, Very interesting. Well, we appreciate your time this morning. CBS Chief Elections Correspondent Robert Costa, who is moderating Face the Nation this Sunday on CBS. Robert, thank you for your time. Thank you. In the nation's northwest corner is Washington. SEA, huh? Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what that is. I can't change their copy. I still call it (laughs) SeaTac. Our resident historian, Felix Bedell, there. He joins us every Friday for All Over the Map. It's a quick look at stories behind local places this week. A double feature with some good news for one Northwest Drive-In Theater and bad news for another. Yeah, uh, first the good news. Remember last month when we reported that the Auto View Drive-In and the Alpine Theater over in Colville were for sale? Yes. Well, I learned yesterday that an offer has been accepted and the sale is scheduled to close late next month. Hey! They're holding off any specifics, but the real estate agent for the seller told me in an email Thursday, quote, I know the current owners are looking forward to retirement and to the fact that the buyer will be continuing to operate the properties as a walk-in theater and drive-in. Oh, so that's, that's good, good news. news. Yeah, yeah, we'll know more next month about Love that. Love that. Now, I don't know if they heard about it being for sale from our story, but I like to fantasize that that's maybe the case. Oh, it's going to happen. We'll we'll get to the bottom of that. Now, as for the bad news, a few miles north of Linden, up in Whatcom County, and just across the international border in the Vancouver exurb of Langley, British Columbia, it's not looking good for the Twilight Drive-In. 
Uh, Twilight's interesting. It only opened 19 years ago, back in 2005. It was featured in the Riverdale Archie reboot back in 2016. Hmm. Now, it apparently will close at the end of the season later this year. I emailed the owners, and because I'm a journalist, I tried to reach them by phone, too. Thank you for phoning the Twilight Drive-In. We are located at 260 Street and Fraser Highway in Langley. That's the lengths I'll go to to get audio for a radio story. Now, the Twilight was a replacement for a drive-in that operated nearby from 1953 to 2003 called the Hillcrest. I think some of the equipment from the Hillcrest might be uh, used at the Twilight. Now, recent coverage from Vancouver, B.C. media indicates the family might be searching for a new location to open a successor to the Twilight. Now, here's the crazy thing. Canadians must be hardier than Americans. Most of the drive-ins I know in Washington won't open until spring. The Twilight in Langley, B.C. is opens tonight. What's it, February? What's the date? February 16th? Yeah. That's early, right? And for, for and it's cold. Well, you stay in your car. Yeah, well, but you have to go to that. I mean, keep the motor running, keep the heater going. Anyway. You get a blanket. Since it still gets dark pretty early, <laughs> the first movie starts at 6.45, which is nice because those summer drive-ins, they start at 10 o'clock. You exactly. don't get home till 3 or so 4 in the morning. So this is actually perfect. Now, here's some audio, an audio tease for the first feature. Can you guess the film and guess the actress who has historic Northwest ties? I begged and begged and begged to have my character drop from the ceiling because that's just what Julia would have done. They have a lot of photos of me just hanging upside down, just waiting for action. Anyone take a guess? No, Hodaka, bye. Jim Jim Caviezel. (laughs) Yeah, it's speaking in Aramaic, actually. No, that's Madam Webb and Sydney Sweeney, who was born in Spokane, raised on South Hill, not far from my favorite old supermarket, Rose Hours. She's so popular. I'm sorry, she just speaks like a valley girl. Yeah, but it's historic, right? She's yeah. from the Northwest. Well, As for the for second her. feature, that one starts at the very reasonable hour of 9 p.m. You'll be home before midnight, probably. Can you guess the film and guess the actress in this recent movie? Check out the new trailer for my new movie. My movie. It's actually my movie. We'll see whose movie it is when it comes out. Okay. Check out the new trailer for our new movie, Anyone But You, now. Better? I guess you don't have to guess the film. Anyone but you. Yeah, it's Sydney Sweeney again, though. But it's Sydney Sweeney with Glenn Powell, right? I could tell. So it might be the final night uh, of the of the last season of Twilight Drive-In in Langley, B.C., but it's also the first night of the first annual Sydney Sweeney Film Festival. Isn't that nice? They're actually paying tribute to a Northwest... Is she going to visit? No. Oh, come on. Um, now, if Canada's too far away, the Blue Fox Drive-In on Whidbey Island is also open this time of year, I was shocked to learn, and they've got the same double bill, so a Sydney Sweeney Film Festival on Whidbey Island this wow, weekend, too. Wow, she's so hot right now. Yeah, and the Sky Line in Shelton is closed for the season. The Wheel Inn in Port Townsend, the Rodeo and Drive in Bremerton is also closed for the season. Um, so let's see what happens with the Twilight if they'll find some replacement real estate nearby and maybe continue the tradition of the Lower Mainland's last drive in theater. Awesome. Can't wait for the update. Thank you, Felix. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to head to Washington, D.C., where we find CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarlane. You have been busy, busy, Scott. Uh, let's start with where Congress is uh, as far as uh, funding interests, such as uh, the, the helping Israel and also in. Uh, well, you take it away because there's so much going on in Congress. You know what happens in school when there's a substitute teacher and the behavior of the students kind of, you know, changes. <laughs> now imagine a classroom with no teacher. Um, that's kind of what it feels like in the U.S. House of Representatives. With respect, the, the, the narrow margins for the majority for House Republicans, the new Speaker of the House who's been yet to kind of instill his will on membership has left this feeling like a classroom with no teacher in the front of the room, and the behavior has been chaotic. What happened this morning is a group of House moderates, Republicans who've been around here for a while trying to get things done, just came up with their own plan to fund Ukraine and make some changes at the border as well, and also to fund Israel and fund Taiwan. Not sure what the prospect of that is, but it's really a provocative thing. 
for a group of Republicans just to circumvent their own leadership and try to find their own way forward because nobody has articulated a path forward on anything getting through the U.S. House to help Ukraine or to address the border issues. It's almost like a disintegrating culture Hmm. in Congress, where at this moment in time, Colleen, they don't have a path forward on anything. So everybody's trying everything. And the deadline is, what, less than a month away? The deadline for a government shutdown is March 1st. March 1st. And then a second deadline on March 8th. Kind of, they broke it in half. The Congress is on recess till February 28th. Doesn't leave a whole lot of work time between February 28th and March 1st to get this done. Thankfully, it's a leap year, so there's a little bit of time. But nobody has spelled out a plan to actually solve this problem and come to an agreement. So we're not just risking a government shutdown. But I think there's a more fundamental, pernicious issue. There's just no planning or system for getting things through reliably, which is why Ukraine has now gone without U.S. aid for two months longer than the administration said it could afford to, and is literally running out of bullets and running out of munitions. What happened to the leadership of Mike Johnson? He was supposed to, to save this and move in, and it, he's almost disintegrated since he took the speakership. Well, a lot of this was working against him. He took over after the ouster of a House speaker, which means you had a very restive very explosive Republican conference to begin with. And his margins were painfully narrow, almost unworkably thin. And he just lost another seat as Republicans lost the seat in New York's third congressional district Monday night when a Democrat took over, won the race. So put that all aside. Um, He's got a, a lot working against him. Any few members of the U.S. House have at this moment veto power. And what's happened over the past few months, Colleen, is Different factions have not just had the power, but they've used it to block fundamental things on the House floor, procedural votes. They even blocked the impeachment of the Homeland Security Secretary the first time it was tried. If any few members of the House have veto power, and then there's a pattern of them using it, hard for any speaker to get anything done. The the, the weight of the world is on Mike Johnson's shoulders, and he's having trouble carrying. What is the motivation for all of this turmoil and disarray in Congress. Their job is to pass a budget. Their job is to work for their constituents. And yet they keep getting distracted by, you know, who's his bigger arguments. Everybody's trying to be the big man or big woman in the House. What's happening to them? Well, that's part of it right there. You nailed it. Um, There's some congressional districts across America um, where the uh, political complexion is such that it actually maybe serves you better politically to block things than to do things. You know, government shutdown seems like it's going to impact millions of Americans, because it will. That doesn't mean it isn't politically advantageous for some members of Congress to entice one back home. So that's, that's, that's kind of the DNA behind this. But I also think you're just dealing with the stubbornness of split control of Congress, Democrats in the Senate, Republicans in the House, in an election year in which the biggest threat politically for each of these members is being challenged in a primary from the right or from the left doesn't exactly make for conducive settings for negotiations and compromise. Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, we've always had a pretty close Congress, though, where it's Democrats on one side, Republicans. You see it in the State of the Union, uh, you know, where one side stands and claps and then the other side stands and claps. We've always had this red versus blue. And yet today, in today's political atmosphere, it's not red versus blue. It's like every person for themselves. Everybody's just trying to eat their own tail at this point. I think that was one of the reasons why they, that, that border security deal cut in the Senate you know, fell apart. Is 
it's not just that people are concerned about you know, themselves and their own political futures and the fact that we're in an election year. Donald Trump said he didn't want it. So that makes it hard for Republicans to support it in an election year. But we're also on the eve of congressional primary season. In just a few weeks, members of Congress have to fend off primary challengers. It is not a time for them to be moving to the middle. And that's one of the difficulties of doing big things, controversial things this time of year. But here's the problem, and there's no way of getting around this, Colleen. It used to be until just now that cutting a budget and keeping the government open wasn't one of those controversial, difficult things. But it has metastasized into one, which is why we're seeing standoff after standoff. Do you want to play crystal ball? And as we near the deadline of March 1st and was it March 8th, what do you think is going to happen? I think we have a bunch of snooze buttons to hit between now and November. They're going to continually pause this deadline for weeks at a time until after the election. That's that's what the crystal ball tells me. It's what, how they've gotten from September 30th to February 16th is by hitting the snooze button. They'll just keep on slamming that thing until November. And then maybe after the election, in the lame duck session, they can figure out something to spare the next Congress from the same nonsense. Well, we'll see how that works out. CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland, thank you so much for your insight this morning. Thanks, Colleen. Now time for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft, a powerful story of endurance and compassion. A five-year-old boy who was badly wounded in Gaza has found much needed care in the U.S. after his aunt says his family was killed by an Israeli strike on their home in December. CBS's Jerika Duncan has his story. Elisa Montanti cut through red tape to get five-year-old Omar Abuquake to the U.S., a frightened little boy in desperate need of medical care. Omar's aunt says his parents, brother, sister, and grandparents were all killed by an Israeli airstrike on their Gaza home in December. He suffered severe injuries, including leg wounds and the amputation of his left arm. I'll get it. At his temporary home run by Montanti's charity, the Global Medical Relief Fund, Omar experienced snow for the first time. I love it. (laughs) This is the first time she sees him smiling. And a bunk bed. These are innocent children that have absolutely no resources or very, very little. And the 60 countries we have helped are all of these children from war-torn and natural disasters. She's partnered with Shriners Children's in Philadelphia. So his left arm was the one that was amputated. Omar's injuries were evaluated by Dr. Scott Cozen. The fact that Omar was able to be brought here is good for Omar, and it's good for his outlook. If he stayed in Gaza or stayed in Egypt, who knows? I, I don't know what would have happened. We were in the operating room as Dr. Cozen performed surgery. So we want to get rid of all this bad scar and replace it with normal skin graft. To repair the wound on Omar's leg. Doctors also begin the process of fitting Omar for a prosthetic arm. His recovery is expected to take several weeks. After that, he'll return to a tent camp in Gaza with his aunt. But far from the reality of war, Omar visited the Staten Island Children's Museum. Okay. Oh. A momentary escape. Whoa, look at you. Where he could be a child <laughs> once again. <laughs> Jerika Duncan, CBS News, New York. Oh, I love hearing those giggles. 
Thank you for that update, Katrina. Joining us now, filling in on the G and Ursula show this morning from 9 to noon is our buddy Travis Mayfield. Hello, good morning, happy Friday. Good morning. So it's you and Angela Poe Russell yeah. this afternoon. It's That's going to be, be a, a show. She's yeah. like a big deal. I'm kind of nervous about being on the radio with her. She is super nice, though, and just fun to be with, just like you. So you two are going to have a delightful <laughs> show. But we brought you in here to talk about a couple of stories. I saw you posting about this on uh, Instagram, a couple of developments in the LGBTQ plus community out of Greece and yeah. also Tennessee. What's happening? I mean, it's like one step forward, two steps back is yeah. what it feels like sometimes. So, yeah, Greece, big news yesterday. Their parliament uh, passed a, a measure and the it's going into law, basically recognizing same sex marriage. And this is this is a big deal for Greece, which is kind of a traditionally conservative country in Europe, um, obviously behind many other European nations, but the first orthodox nation to recognize same sex marriage. Also, at the same time, giving uh, same sex uh, parents the same rights of adoption as uh, mixed gendered couples as well. So a very, very big deal in Greece, uh, moving the ball forward when it comes to equity and equality. Um, the church there did not come out in support. They, the church was certainly still against this idea. But the prime minister campaigned on this and, and won wow. a, 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 like a mandate of a, a very big um, majority in the parliament in Greece. So this was an issue. And if you look at the polling there, I mean, it's not even a, a close matter. A majority of Greeks support mm-hmm. same sex families and same sex marriage. I thought it was interesting that they allowed uh, for, you know, same sex unions and also for adoption, but uh, stopped short of allowing uh, children through surrogacy, mm. which is something near and dear to your yeah. heart. Heart, why is that? Mm, there is there is some concerns, especially among the church and um, in the church when it comes to, you know, reproductive medicine. That is something that even some church clergy, both Orthodox and Catholic and, and, and Protestant, sometimes have a problem with reproductive assistance in medicine. It, it is something that they don't like and um, they feel is potentially immoral. And then surrogacy, that is also something that, for example, the Pope has called a great evil. I saw that. And, and believes that it is trafficking in women and using women's bodies and that that's not okay. I, I, our kids were born by a surrogacy and I, I do not believe that and I don't I don't think that's when when surrogacy is regulated and it is all parties going in together and they have legal framework for it. It's a beautiful, joyful thing. And in fact, this weekend, we are going to spend some time in Portland and we're going to spend some time with our surrogate's family. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it, you know, 10 years later and we still have a relationship with her and she's that important to us. Right. It is It is not us taking advantage of someone's body. So that that is not something that's going to be allowed for Greek couples. But, um, you know, at least it's sparking a conversation and they're moving in the right direction. Unlike Tennessee, mm-hmm. where the state Senate and the, state, the House, and now it's headed to the governor's office, has just passed a bill... Um, um, that would allow officiants, marriage officiants, to decline to perform weddings if they're just morally not into it. So if a judge or a justice of the peace is approached by me and my by, my boyfriend mm-hmm. and we're like, we want to get married and the judge or justice of the peace is like, and I'm not into this. I'm yeah. not into this. They can just be like, no. Go find somebody else. Yeah. And so suddenly what you have are county clerks for gay couples and county clerks for straight couples. And now we have these separate but My equal yeah. situations happening. Are if we not seeing the, history right. repeat itself? If in you're these... going to perform, if you're going to say, like, do you take so-and-so to take, do it for everybody. Like, what's, why, I don't, that's, that's, let's not have separate 
counters and yeah. Yeah. Well, and I thought this was decided based on the bakery cases and the wedding invitation cases, you know, state by state. We've seen these instances where people who provide a service say, no, I don't want to because I don't believe in the morality or, you know, whatever it is of same sex marriage. And it goes all the way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court says this. Yet these are, are county clerks elected officials? Are they appointed? It depends on the county. But they're working yeah. for a state right. government. Exactly. That's what happened the between the separation of right. religious beliefs, church, and your work for the government? Me deciding not to bake you a cake because I don't like two dudes getting married doesn't result in you not getting married. Right. Like, I mean, that's a problem. Like, that's a legal. If I went to the DMV and I was like, I'd like to get a driver's license, and the person, the clerk behind the counter was like, oh, I don't like you, girl. Yeah. I'm not going to give you one. Like, not because I wasn't driving well, but just because, like, I look at your face and I don't like you. Like, that's not okay. No. Like, you're you're a government employee. You represent the government. And legally in this country, two men and two women can get married. Yeah. Like, that's that's the law. Uh, so yeah. you got to enforce that. I don't, I don't know how this survives in Tennessee, to be honest. We'll keep an eye on it. Thank you for the updates, Travis. Yeah, thanks. You guys are here. in the process of planning your show starting at 9. Yeah. You bet you're going to talk about this. Yeah, we've got this on tap. We've also got um, uh, other stories we're working on as well, working on our meeting. So, yeah, lots to talk about starting at 9. All right. Thank you, Travis. Good to see you. Let's hear from one of the more fun things happening in Seattle over the next several weekends, a showcase of young musicians at the Museum of Pop Culture. To give us all the details, we have Public Engagement Manager for MoPop, Robert Rutherford, joining us. Robert, thank you so much for being here. Good morning. So what exactly is this music competition for young people? Well, first off, it's not a competition, it's a showcase, and that's something that we've changed in the last several years. But this is Sound Off, and uh, this is one of Mopop's longest-running programs. Uh, It's been around for a long time and has an amazing legacy of supporting young musicians from across the Pacific Northwest. And when you say young musicians, how young are we talking? All the musicians who come through the program are 21 or under. Oh, wow. And is it all genres, all music? Tell me about the acts that are coming up. It's, it, yeah, it covers everything. And, uh, you know, one of the things that's amazing to watch is every year, you know, we get talented musicians from across the entire region. And they always show us what's coming up next in the music industry in the, you know, what, what, how people are innovating. And we get all genres. This year we have classical music, singer-songwriters, hip-hop, uh, you know, rock music, bedroom pop. It's, it's a little bit of everything. What is bedroom pop? <laughs> I think that that would generally uh, define an artist that is sort of working by themselves. So they produce their own beats, they produce their own music, and then work on the lyrics and, and put it all together. So it's uh, it's generally speaking, they're working with very, very simple tools, laptops, um, digital audio workstations, uh, but they can create really rich, very textured music. Wow, that's fascinating. I imagine, too, if, you know, maybe you have a child or a young person who might not be part of a band, but are showing interest in music, this would be a great event to bring them to, to expose them to these different different types of music. I've never heard of bedroom pop, but that sounds really fun and, you know, attainable, accessible for other young people. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that we also see every year is, is sort of a range of, of experience with these artists. You know, some of them have been performing live and, and have a little bit of um, experience. But some of these musicians that we get into the program, this is really their first time performing outside of their bedroom or outside of, say, a, a talent show at their school. 
That is great. So How it's, does, really, it's really great exposure for them. It is. You mentioned in your program. So this is something that the artists try out for or how do they get involved? They submit music, and, and that's a pretty straightforward process. So we have a call for applications that generally opens in the summer uh, before. So uh, we have a four-month period where we accept applications, where, uh, where we go out into the community and try and make ourselves available for young people who are interested in the program to learn more about it. They generally submit four tracks uh, and a photo of themselves and a bio just telling us a little bit about what they want to do and how they sort of view community in, in their music. Um, and uh, the only requirements are that all of the work is original, you know, no, no cover bands. Uh, we, we want young people who are sort of pushing themselves into new creative spaces. Um, and, but ap- applying fairly straightforward. Yeah. And if you do show up this weekend to see what can people expect when they walk through the door? Just a good time. I mean, this is, uh, you know, we we try and make this space really wide open and we want to fill that room with a lot of young people. We want their peers to come and check it out. And uh, it's just a big celebration of of their work. It's a culmination of of their application process and sort of the the welcoming um, of all of these young artists into this growing cohort of sound off musicians. Um, But this this coming weekend, we have three. Uh, acts performing Lucia Flores Wiseman, who's a singer-songwriter, the Rat Utopia Experiment, also known as TRUE, which is a great acronym, uh, from Tacoma, who play rock and roll, and LCN, who is one of those bedroom pop artists that I referenced. I'm looking at that right now. Do you have to get tickets online, or can you show up at the door? Both. Uh, tickets are available at mopop.org, but people can also swing through and uh, just get a ticket on their way in. Robert Rutherford, he's the public engagement manager at Mopop. Great event coming up of young musicians being showcased at the Museum of Pop Culture. Thanks for joining us, Robert. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.